Our focus today is some of the sort of psychology related to refactoring. Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And as always, we talk about DevOps for small companies and small teams. Today, I have a special guest, JB Rainsberger, who I've been following for several years off and on. Uh, welcome, JB. Thanks for coming on. Um, why don't you give us just a brief introduction to what you do and why you might know something about the topic we're discussing today? Yeah, thanks very much, Jonathan. It's uh, nice to get a chance to, to chat with you. And I guess the short version is I'm an old XP guy. Uh, that's extreme programming. Um, and uh, I sort of became interested in um, not so much DevOps specifically. I'll admit I'm not as big a part of that community as, as maybe I could otherwise be. But a lot of what we were talking about in the early days of extreme programming kind of fairly logically flow into what DevOps has become. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least that idea of sort of the programmers having more input and even control over uh, their environment. And so I happened to become interested uh, in this stuff because I wasn't a very good programmer. Uh, I felt like it was really hard for me to write 10 lines of code without making a mistake. And so things like test-first programming became interesting to me. And over the years, um, my, my general approach to software really hasn't changed that much from the sort of extreme programming days. Those fundamentals have really served me well over the last 20 years. I think one thing that's changed a lot is sort of the overall uh, tone, message, framing uh, of what those techniques, like test-first programming, like evolutionary design, like uh, continuous releases, what how that changes the way that programmers think about and experience the profession of software development. And so what's really emerged over the last mm, five to 10 years for me has been to focus on helping programmers work with a lot less stress, help them feel, I, I want to help them feel better about their craft, not necessarily because I want them to become masters, not necessarily because their performance and their business results are that important to me, although they are for any clients listening. Um, but I genuinely believe that, um, great results come from programmers who have slack time and energy to care about their craft without being asked to do it, who feel like they have enough time to do good work, to protect their capacity to deliver features. And a lot of that, what lies at the center of that for a lot of programmers is stress. And so a lot of the techniques that I teach and write about, although they do produce good results, at their core, it's really about helping programmers work with less stress so that they can get out of their own way and do the kinds of things that will help them be better employers and better suppliers to their, uh, or better employees and suppliers to their employers and clients. That's great. Uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people in software development these days work with Scrum. Uh, to, to many people, Scrum is the face of agile software development, right. right? And you know, that's all they know. And and I I've experienced. I imagine you have too. I'd love to hear if if not, uh, that many people don't realize that there are a whole other set of practices that help them on a technical level. They think that they have backlogs and they have story points and they have product owners and Scrum masters, and they don't realize that there's a whole other school of of resources and thought about doing the technical part of agile 
better. And, and so I, I'm really excited to talk to you today about how we can dip into that and, and how people, especially those who've never heard of this idea that you mean there's more to Agile than, than just Scrum? <laughs> right. How, how can we do, what can we do? How can we take something away from this and, and improve? Yeah, I know that I know that our, our focus today is probably going to be a little bit more on refactoring and some of the sort of psychology related to refactoring. But um, it is important to me for people to understand that what we call, it's complicated, but what we have been trying to call um, agile software development for the last nearly 25 years now consists of a lot more than Scrum. There are various, we, we think of them as schools. So just like in martial arts, you have various schools, just like in art, you know, in painting, you have various schools where people maybe focus on certain kinds of techniques over others. I mean, what we all have in common is this lightweightness. What, what really, you know, Agile meant to be from the beginning um, was exemplified by what's the least we can do and still deliver great results. I mean, ultimately, that's, that's where it kind of came from. It was a, you know, it was an attempt to revolt against the heavyweight ceremonial um, trends of the 80s and 90s. And to sort of get back to a little bit more of what it must have been like for people who built software professionally in the early, early days of the profession when maybe the one programmer had to know how to do everything and, and therefore they had to kind of be good at everything and they had to care about everything and they were involved in every aspect. When we sort of stratified you testers do this, you coders do this, you designers do this, you architects do this, you business analysts do that. Um, you know, basic theory of constraints thinking will tell us that all those handoffs are going to create delays and that delays are going to, those delays are going to create stress and suffering. We want to, we don't want to do that. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of want to reclaim the, the concept of lightweight software development um, in part because I think I think Lightweight does a better job of capturing what it is that we all have in common, Scrum, XP, FDD, DSDM, all the various schools, Crystal. Um, lightweight is one really important thing that we have in common. I mean, Humane is another, but and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, and whereas maybe the word Agile has become misconstrued and has kind of become the new heavyweight way of approaching things, or in some camps, as you mentioned, um, it has become mostly equated with sticky notes and retrospectives and, and product owners sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong and all this kind of other stuff. I kind of want to, I, if, if I get to wave my magic wand, that the next decade would involve sort of a back to the basic principles approach where we try to just go back to that classic question. What is the least we can do? and still deliver great results. And then look at our context and decide which of the various techniques from extreme programming, from Scrum, from uh, feature-driven development, from DSDM, from, from lean theory of constraints, any of these areas, uh, Kanban method, whatever it is, and bring those to bear. Um, it just, as I said, it so happens for me that because I'm more interested in helping people at an individual level, Managing their energy, in particular their stress level, is kind of where I've landed on that. And so one of the reasons that I want things, I mean, I like lightweight because it also kind of makes, I mean, we feel lightweight when we work with less stress, more focus, more concentration, um, worrying about one thing at a time. And I think that, you know, there's one big thing I've noticed over the last 10 years is that a lot of programmers are trying very hard 
to figure out how to be good at their craft and they feel like they feel kind of overwhelmed with all the things that they need to learn now it's much harder to be a programmer now than it was 20 years ago and that's added a lot of stress and then asking them to do things like master evolutionary design so that they can you know protect their capacity to deliver features over the long term while also fighting with the people who are worried that they're not delivering features quickly enough that's enough stress to send anybody back to bed uh and that's one of the things that i'd really like to help them with this is a topic that i get asked about a lot uh you know devops you know, we, we decided someone decided that it was a good idea to take everything that you're talking about in dev and add ops onto the same sort of so-called job title right you know it, we, we we say that devops isn't really a job title but it it feels like it sometimes and i get asked this all the time jonathan how do I learn enough to be a, to, to do DevOps? How do I learn everything I need to know about solid principles and, and TDD and also Terraform and Kubernetes and all these million other things? <laughs> so yes, we need to make we need to approach this in a lightweight way. So it, it seems like some of this comes easy for some people and, and not for others, right? So what, what's the difference? Why, why do some people just run with it and, and they seem to just maybe they look like from the from the outside they look like uh a superhero they're they're doing everything and others of us we struggle and you know we have all this complexity what's the difference ah that's a huge question um i'll, I'll maybe i'll try to answer a small part of it um because i i mean the question that you asked right there i don't know i don't know what it is that makes people that makes it easy for some and not for others. But I have noticed one specific thing that seems to happen. That is uh, an indicator of the ones who kind of stick with it and see the benefits and realize those benefits. And in particular, thinking about something like evolutionary design and the ones who kind of get stuck in this perpetual advanced beginner state. Um, so I'm using Dreyfus's model of skills acquisition. So when I say advanced beginner, that's actually stage two. I'm not making judgments about people. I know nobody likes to be called a beginner, but an advanced beginner is somebody who has left the stage, mostly has left the stage of being, uh, of needing to be directed on every aspect of what they're doing. They're starting to figure out how to put some of the pieces they've learned together in ways which are novel for them where nobody taught them you have to do this followed by this followed by this there's sort of you know if you think of of uh, uh, uh you know someone who's in, interested in cooking or baking this is the person who's starting to make substitutions in the recipes that they've been following mm -hmm. and they don't always get it right and they don't necessarily know the theory behind how to balance flavors but they at least understand that if i don't have you know if i don't have honey i can probably use maple syrup and get away with it or if i you know uh, different hot peppers will probably be okay. And I'm going to have to play around a little bit to figure out which hot peppers are too hot for this kind of dish. And then I can learn little things like, well, if I use peppers that are too hot, then a little bit of cinnamon or sweetness can help balance it. Starting to learn a little bit of the theory, but still mostly when things get tough, when you're not sure what to do, you still need to look outside for help. You're past the stage of having to follow the recipe exactly but you're not yet at the stage where you can answer a lot of your own questions. And that's kind of what I mean by the advanced beginner stage. And I, what I've noticed is that a lot of programmers get stuck in the advanced beginner stage when it comes to evolutionary design and specifically when it comes to refactoring. Mm -hmm. And a person knows that they're stuck in the advanced beginner stage when a couple of things are going on for them. One of them is 
that they they have this vague idea that they should be able to uh, that they should be able to make room for a feature they're trying to add or make it easier to fix a defect by making some relatively small changes to the structure of the code they're working on. But it's, it's so difficult. I shouldn't say difficult. They, they still have to put so much conscious effort and attention into the steps of refactoring, into remembering, you know, what keystrokes in their IDE were extract method or rename or move or, you know, how do I do the steps by hand? You know, if I'm working in, in a plain text editor, what are the steps that I need to do in order to be able to safely move this function from that module to that module and move this method from that class to that class? That when it comes time to actually execute the steps, those are still, they still require some conscious effort. It's not easy. I mean, they can figure it out. Mm -hmm. They might need to remind themselves how to do it. But they haven't yet attained that, that, uh, that point where the fingers seem to do it even before the brain entirely engages. So that's one thing. And another thing is that as a result of that, they have this feeling that, um, oh, now I know how I should have designed this part of the system. Let me think about how to refactor to get from here to there. And then they sit and think about it for a while. And they have this vague feeling of dread, like, I can't quite see how to get from here to there in a bunch of discrete, reversible, safe, easy to understand steps. Mm -hmm. I know how to throw it I know how to throw this part of the code away and write it again and hope that I get it done soon enough that nobody will be delayed by me doing that. But then that's not really refactoring. That's not a, really the benefit of evolutionary design. Part of the part of the benefit of evolutionary design isn't just that we can refactor the code, but is this sort of confident feeling that I can keep the design simple for today's problems. And next week when we encounter a feature we didn't have in mind, or when we have to fix a problem we didn't realize was coming, we can just adapt the design to meet the needs of the future without anticipating the needs of the future. And we can kind of every week pretend that we made the right design decisions all along. Um, that's really part of what refactoring is meant to enable. It's not meant to just be a mechanical way of changing design, but you know, imagine how powerful it would be if you could pretend that you always made exactly the right design decisions at every moment, and yet at the same time, didn't have to anticipate the future. That's what, that's what evolutionary design is supposed to be about. And I think programmers, because they don't develop this facility with the craft with the, the the I was gonna say the craft, but really more I mean the techniques involved. They get stuck in this feeling of, oh, I should be able to refactor here. Oh, it will take me too long. Oh, I'm feeling, you know, product owner X or boss Y breathing down my neck. Uh, I'll just, I know how to do it the fast way, even though it's not the right way. It'll probably be good enough. Uh, I'll try again next time. And then of course, as we know, next time rarely comes. Right? If I never feel like I know how to take advantage of evolutionary design to fix this problem right now or to, or to make room for that feature coming up in the next day, if I never practice it, I never get good enough at it to feel confident at it, which means that I'll never actually do it. And this is how we end up in this advanced beginner state forever. 
I might be willing to refactor as an exercise an hour or two every so often if it's a task that nobody's breathing down my neck for, but I'll never feel comfortable using it in an industrial strength situation under real time pressure when it could actually be valuable, when it could really have impact, let alone convincing the people around me to join me in doing it, which is a whole other problem. <laughs> indeed, indeed. What do you say to the people who, uh, the, the naysayers about refactoring or, or, or this evolution, more, more part of the point, the evolutionary design, you know, the, you know, it, it would save us so much time if we would just do the big design up front. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, there's that school of thought too. Yep. Um, and, and, and in my experience, most of those people have tried evolutionary design in some way and found it uh, to be a disaster. How, how do you, how do you address these people? Yeah. I, I, so um, a couple of things. One, um, I think I heard this from Ron Jeffries for the first time 20 years ago, which was if I knew which mistakes I was going to make in advance, I would have won the lottery by now. So that's one thing that, you know, one of the reasons why we can't just build the whole thing up front or design the whole thing up front, I should say, um, is that we have this really strange habit programmers do of um, not noticing that the picture in our mind isn't quite right until we actually start writing code that that's when we find it right the we've heard this in a million different ways no plan survives contact with the enemy um and you know i think that the the primary difference between the people who favor evolutionary design and the people who favor design up front is that the people who favor evolutionary design have kind of accepted the idea that you probably can't understand it all in that much detail up front that there is some amount of learning that happens when you build it. Mm -hmm. And some of that is simple stuff that you just didn't see coming. In principle, if you had thought about it for two weeks longer, you might have figured all that stuff out. But at the same time, it's very hard to understand everything at the highest scope and at the smallest level of detail and be comprehensive about the whole thing. I mean, that's asking a lot of any human. And do we really want the only people in the world, the only competent software designers in the world to the people to be the people who have this rare cognitive capacity to hold all of those details in their head at once. Like I, I just, I don't think we need to put that limitation on us. So the people who insist on, um, you know, designing more upfront are really betting the whole enterprise on some key people's ability to have that or some key people's cognitive capacity. And I just don't think we need to do that. I think that one of the one of the things that we've learned about evolutionary design and having practiced it for a long time is that once you get past that rut, once you sort of get past that state of, of advanced beginnerness, um, then it, I mean, evolutionary design is kind of a um, expert architect fabrication system. I mean, it it helps people really deeply understand how to design systems well. They're designing systems better every day while they're learning. Um, they deeply understand what makes modular design work. Um, they build tremendous judgment, which allows them to make you know difficult trade-off decisions in, in key moments. And more important than anything else, everyone in the project community can learn how to do it. I, I genuinely believe that everybody can learn to be competent at evolutionary design and that it's actually not that hard to become really quite good at it 
Um, you know, here's where I could insert the I did it, so can you joke. Um, I'm not. I'm going to say the opposite. You know, I, I was one of those people who was in the right place at the right time. And I do have that cognitive capacity. I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy. I have a lot of raw genetic talent, if you want. Um, when it comes to just being a pattern recognition machine and being able to hold a bunch of things in my head. And I can't do design up front very well. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say the opposite. Not that because I can do it, other people can do it. But more like, I'm really bad at design up front. Like pretty laughably bad at it. So, and I'm, you know, if I can't do it, then I'm not so sure that other people should try that hard. And I certainly don't want them to feel like failures if they can't. Mm-hmm. And so that's really, you know, for the naysayers, I would say, I understand your pain. I know why it happens. The thing that I want to talk about today, the the thing that we're here to discuss, this sort of how do you get past that advanced beginner stage of evolutionary design is exactly the reason why you shouldn't trust it. Because if you don't know how to help people get over that hump, if they're going to be stuck as advanced beginners, like a whole bunch of advanced beginners doing refactoring on a project is a disaster. We need some people who get past that advanced beginner stage. And that's part, that's really one of the, the key messages that I've been trying to deliver over the past couple of years is what's going on? How do we get past it? And so that I can say to the naysayers, once one person gets over that hump and then a second person gets over that hump, it's profit after that. Mm-hmm. That's what makes this really so critical. And so, um, you know, Unfortunately, we have this habit in software development of throwing a bunch of beginners at things and saying, ah, they'll figure it out. And I think this is evolutionary design is one of those things for which that simply doesn't work. This isn't the same as learning about how some technology works. This isn't the same about as learning how some framework or some library works, uh, where you just learn it, document it, and hope that other people understand the words you wrote. There's a real craft to this. You know, it's the difference between learning chess and playing it at a high level. Um, I don't want to overstate how hard it is, but I do want to be clear that if we just let people stay advanced beginners and expect good results, we're going to have a bad time. So let's, you know, the good news is I have some ideas about how we can help people get past that advanced beginner stage. And in that case, I am going to say, if I can do it, so can you. Okay. (laughs) Before we go into those tips, could you recap how do you identify if you're a listener? How do you, how does a listener identify that they are an advanced beginner uh, with evolutionary design and refactoring? I think the short version is that you, um, if you feel like you don't need to follow step-by-step guides for every refactoring, if you feel like there are some refactorings that you kind of understand how to do, but occasionally need to be reminded, need to remember exactly which keystrokes they are, need to remember exactly which sequence the steps are. If you try a refactoring that's of, say, you know, not one that's routine, but if you try a refactoring that's not routine for you yet and you make mistakes and you have to undo and try again, and if it seems like you never progress farther than that, that you're focusing so much on how to refactor safely that you never feel like you can think clearly about, am I going in a good direction? Is this really going to improve the design? That's a signal of being stuck in that advanced beginner stage where you are so, you're still so worried about the mechanics that it feels like you're just moving code around and nothing's actually getting better. 
So we've identified that we're now an advanced beginner. What can we do? How do we how do we start to advance to the next stage? Uh, well, uh, so I'll start a little bit with um, a little bit more about why it's important to be aware of this and, and what bad things can happen. And that's sort of the idea that um, when you're stuck in this advanced beginner stage, what tends to happen is you sit down to maybe add a feature or fix a defect or you see some problem in the design that you want to improve. You have some spare time. You want to try to be a, a good product community citizen. And you look at what it is that you would need to do. You don't have a clear plan of exactly how it's going to work. You have some basic idea of, I want to remove duplication. I want to improve names. Um, I know how to, I feel comfortable that I know how to maybe move code from one place to another. But, you know, I don't know what the key abstraction that's missing is, or I don't know, I don't have a really big idea about where I want the design to go. I just know that this design makes that change difficult and I want to move in that direction. And then you sit down to do it and you think about, okay, roll up your sleeves, start doing a couple of small refactorings, you know, extract a method, move a method from this class to that class, maybe rename something. And you start to feel like, I, I'm not really sure that this is actually getting any better, but now I have a clearer picture in my mind of what I wish it looked like. So then maybe you take some paper, an index card or something, you draw a diagram of what it is that you actually think the design should look like. You look at the code, you look at the diagram of sort of where you want to go, and it feels like I don't know how I'm going to get from here to there. And I can throw away, like I can pick some decent sized part of the code, throw it away and try again. Or I can try building this new thing and hoping that I can figure out how to make the wires fit into the existing system later. But then that starts to feel like, oh, you know, that's going to take me a long time. I wasn't really think, planning on spending three days doing this. I wanted to make some improvements in a couple of hours. And when this happens, one of the thoughts that comes to your mind is, I can't afford to refactor this code right now. And if you keep saying that to yourself often enough, then eventually that becomes something more like, I'm never going to be able to refactor this code. And if you say that to yourself often enough, that starts to become something like every time we make a design decision in this code base, we have to be really careful because we are going to be trapped by those decisions for the rest of our lives, or at least for as long as I'm on this project. We're never going to get out from under the design choices that somebody made in the past or that we made today. You know, We become terrified that we're going to essentially create constraints for ourselves that we're never going to get away from. And if you say that often enough, then it starts to become something more like, you know, I just don't think I'm ever going to be able to do good work around here. Every time we make a design decision where, where you know, it becomes a prison, it's, I, I just don't, I don't think this is the right place for me. It sounds like you're, you're talking about the other side of the coin when, when you hear lean practitioners say things like defer decision or, or implement something that you can change later. That's only valuable if you know how to change it later. Absolutely right? true. Right. Part of the part of the point of refactoring is not just to make the design better, but um, part of the point of evolutionary design, like I said earlier, is to is to allow us to pretend that we made the perfect decision at every stage. Because if we make decisions less expensive to change, that doesn't just allow us to recover from changing conditions or to allow us to recover from actual mistakes, which do sometimes happen. We just have the wrong idea of what we needed and we do it incorrectly and we need to fix it. But think about how much 
freer you feel when you have confidence that you can change your mind. That changing your mind is not going to cost an exorbitant amount. That it's not a failure. It's not, uh, it doesn't bring judgment with it. And it's something that you can, you can just change your mind almost whenever you need to. I mean, there's a dark side to that too, but the bright side of it really is that if I feel comfortable changing my mind, then I don't have to agonize over this decision right now. I can afford to make a decision which seems reasonable for right now, knowing that I can make that, I can change it later. And that sounds like a nightmare until you actually experience it and you realize that the amount of rework that, that you were terrified was going to happen actually tends not to happen. Yes, some rework does happen. Yes, there are some decisions that we make in the heat of the moment that end up not surviving even to the next day. But you know, the 85% of the time when we just sort of easily guide the design to evolve gives us a lot of spare energy to deal with the 15% of the time when we actually mess up. Um, I think that that's... And what that does is that wears down our resistance. That makes it much easier for us to actually benefit from evolutionary design, right? The flip side, so the learned helplessness that I was describing earlier, the flip side of that is what happens when you really actually start to get good at this after a while. It's not just about being able to move code around, but it's about, you start to feel like I don't have to agonize over every decision. Um, the number of decisions that I need to agonize over goes way down. The number of decisions which are costly to change goes way down. We just have a lot more freedom to do what we need to do in the moment knowing that we can make it fit the design better literally minutes later or weeks later and it costs almost the same mm -hmm. um and that that turns you know that that's incredibly freeing um it's i i think it's stress reducing on balance that it really helps people feel like um you know that feeling of i have to be careful about this decision because we'll fix it later but later never comes as we improve at evolutionary design, at refactoring in particular, later actually comes. I mean, what part of the reason later number co never comes is that we feel like it's very expensive to change our decisions. But if we have hundreds and hundreds of examples of being able to change our decisions less expensively, correctly, accurately, safely, when we need to, actually, we can defer commitment and feel confident that it's the right decision. It's not something we're getting away with anymore. It becomes actually a strategy instead of a concession. And that makes it, yeah, that's, as you say, it's exactly what all the lean folks are telling us about real options thinking. Um, if we don't learn those techniques, we'll never unlock that power. And so to get back to your question of how do we actually do this? Um, I have good news and bad news. Um, the good news is that by practicing evolutionary design, we are constantly bathing in example after example after example of good design, better design, bad design, worse design. Every time we try to refactor, we're adding a little bit more to our rich mental model of what makes design good. Now, the bad news is... Um, if you only rely on on-the-job practice, as it were, uh, and I'm going to be very clear here, if you only rely on live practice under real pressure on a code base for which they pay you money, um, then your success will come down to luck. 
And this goes back to a question you asked earlier about why does it seem easy for some and not for others? One of the things that seems to happen is that if you're in the right place at the right time and you have enough slack and you believe in the value of evolutionary design, then you'll create opportunities to practice it in the way that I'm going to describe. And if you don't, then you won't. And if you don't practice deliberately, you're probably not going to get very far except by accident. Very few people can just read some books about evolutionary design and then do it well. So if you have no slack to learn to practice in a deliberate way, then that is almost certainly going to trap you in that state of advanced beginner. What is the relationship in your mind between uh, refactoring evolutionary design and TDD? In the old days, we talked about test-first programming, where the only rule was you don't write production code until you have a failing test. And maybe another way to say it is you don't add behavior to the system without a failing test. And that's it. Test-first programming, the way it was written in the late 90s, that's really all it was. Um, and that's the way I teach today. Now, the difference between test-first programming and test-driven development is the driven part. Um, in fact, to the point where even in the early days, after Kent uh, Beck published his test-driven development by example book, where he sort of, that sort of signaled the, the division. Before that book, we talked about test-first programming, and after that book, we talked about test-driven development. And I think part of what he was emphasizing in that book, and what I, the way that I think of it since, is that test-driven development is essentially the test-first programming rule plus refactoring. Okay. So if you just do test-first programming, when does design happen? Well, either design never happens and you get a big ball of mud that works, but eventually be just becomes increasingly difficult to maintain. Or you do all that design up front and then you use tests to help you type the code into the computer correctly. And that allows you to have a well-designed system, which is less expensive to maintain and has the confidence of, or we have the confidence that the code does what we thought we asked it to do. And so, as a rough guide, you can think of test-driven development as test-first programming plus refactoring. But what really the driven part of test-driven development, I believe, comes from being able to start to use the tests not only as a way to tell you if the code behaves the way you wanted, but to use the tests as a source of feedback about the design. So when I teach this, what I ask people to do after they get used to test-first programming is to think about this extra, I don't want to call it a rule, but a guideline. Like the no code without a failing test, that's a rule. If you're not doing that, you're not doing test-first programming, that's fine. We can still, you know, we can still be friends and we can still go out on Friday, but don't call it test-first programming if you're not going to write a test before you write uh, production code. But for test-driven development, for me, what I ask people to do is to think about this. If you notice that a test is annoying in some way, slow, painful to understand, painful to write, requires a lot of copy and paste, has a bunch of excessive tests set up, whatever it is. When you look at a test and kind of go bleh, like you don't like it for some reason, then I want you to suspect the production code design. I want you to say there's something about the production code design. I almost made the, I almost made the mistake of saying wrong. There's something about the production code design which might or might not be okay that is causing that test to exhibit this thing that makes you go bleh. And instead of saying that it's the test's fault, that there's something wrong with the test, let's look at the production code design and ask the question, if we change the production code design in a way that made that test 
smaller, more concise, easier to understand, whatever it is. Uh, would that actually improve the design of the overall system? Would that also reduce our cost to maintain the system over time? And the test-driven development practitioner will assume the answer is yes. I will suspect that the production code is the problem until proven otherwise. Okay. And that's really what distinguishes test-first programming and test-driven development. And then I can just say that test-driven development is just one particularly safe way of doing evolutionary design. Right. In principle, you can do evolutionary design without tests. I'm not sure I would invest my own money in somebody doing evolutionary design without tests. It seems kind of risky. Um, but I did run for six months a bunch of ensemble programming sessions through PubMob.com called Evolutionary Design Without Tests, where we expressly um, explored this question. What happens if we try to do evolutionary design without tests? How does it feel? What problems do we encounter? And the short version seemed to be that the conclusions we reached in six months were essentially that if you have experienced test-driven development practitioners, the habits that they've built when they've practiced TDD allow them to do evolutionary design without tests surprisingly well. Hmm. However, um, the people who don't have those habits yet are perhaps going to struggle to learn how to change code in teeny tiny steps that are so small that each step is obviously correct. That they, what they have is kind of a vocabulary problem. Like they just haven't seen enough examples of, of, well, if I add zero there in a way that's plus 12 and minus 12, then that allows me to rearrange the code in this way and poof, it gets easier. Or let me take that object and or let me take that value and put it in a list and then take it back out of the list right away but that will allow me to extract this function which will improve the design a little bit that those tricks they just haven't seen enough of them yet and one of the ways to see them is to practice refactoring and one of the ways to safely practice refactoring is to have tests and one of the ways to ensure you have tests is to write them first so that mm -hmm. kind of brings you back to you can refactor without writing tests but i wouldn't recommend it um until you've spent a decade or so refactoring with tests. And then if I take them away from you, you'll probably survive and you'll probably actually do fairly well. Um, you know, Fred George and the programmer anarchy movement sort of established that, that you don't have to write tests your entire career, but it's probably a good idea to spend a good eh, five to 10 years trying it on a daily basis. And the habits that you build are really going to be helpful. And then if I have to drop you into code where you don't have the tests that you want, or if I drop you in a situation where writing those tests is unusually expensive or unusually difficult, you don't have to feel stuck. But again, that goes back to the advanced beginner issue, right? Mm -hmm. Being stuck in the advanced beginner stage, part of that comes from never quite getting to the point where you've built those habits that allow you to do that without tests, safely, accurately, effectively, you know, in a way that will make me feel comfortable paying for the project. Yeah. I, I've, I, I hear you uh, describing this and it really resonates with my own experience. Uh, I mean, I learned to do TDD uh, because I was trying to refactor and uh, I wasn't, I didn't feel safe about refactoring without tests. And so I, of course I was doing the test after I'd been doing test after programming for a while. I write my, mm -hmm. My code. I I write some yeah, tests. That's how I started course, too. Yeah, it covers 
50 to 80% of the use cases. And then I would always later discover, oh, there's that one corner case I didn't think of covering and so on and so forth. And then I think it was Michael Feather's book uh, on refactoring yeah. that really drove home the idea of TDD. And I, I didn't run with it right away, but I, w I would at least write a test before I would extract a function, or, or maybe I would extract first, but before I would refactor the function, I would write a test. And that's really what led me to the TDD thing. So I, I and that's why I asked you, because I see mm -hmm. refactoring and TDD is, is really going hand in hand, at least in my own experience. And I was curious, you've convinced me that I am a, expert or an advanced beginner uh, and I need to get better at refactoring and you've explained why it's important. What's the next step uh, on, on my journey to improvement? Right. So the big thing that's missing. So part of the reason Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion. So our conversation took longer than expected, but that's all right. It just means we need to turn this into two episodes. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when the new episode comes out. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day. <laughs>